We're starting a series on the book of Judges, and Judges um, has some blood and guts in it, to be honest with you. Um, the Old Testament is not rated PG. Um, if you've read any of it, you know that. And so this morning we're going to be looking at um, uh, some of that going on, so just giving you a fair warning. Um, Judges is an interesting book. It's a book in the Bible. If you want to turn there in your Bible, we're going to be in the first couple chapters. But the book of Judges, just to give you a little context, the nation of Israel, you probably know this um, and have heard this, that they were enslaved in Egypt, right, for 400 years under Pharaoh. And Moses led the people out of Egypt into what God had promised Abraham would be the promised land. It was the land of Canaan. So uh, Moses leads the people out of Egypt, and he's going to lead them into the land of Canaan. And they've got to go in and fight. They've got to take the land over from the people that occupy it, the Canaanites. But um, the Israelites didn't trust God. They didn't believe God. There were giants in the land, and they got afraid. And so they turned back. And so God took them out in the wilderness for 40 years until that generation died off, the generation that didn't have faith. And then he uh, raised up a new generation, and he raised up a new leader in in, uh, Joshua, And he led them into the promised land. And Joshua led them to conquer the cities and uh, the peoples in the land of Canaan. Um, And so uh, uh, the book of Judges comes after the death of Joshua and before the nation of Israel has a king. Um, We're going to find as we get um, into 1 and 2 Samuel that um, Samuel's a prophet of God and he appoints Saul to be the first king of Israel. And so it's in between this. There's about 270 years There's 12 or 13 judges that are raised up. These guys are leaders. They're military uh, military and spiritual leaders that help the nation of Israel. Um, The thing that happened with the nation, uh, with Israel, is they did not expel the Canaanites. So some of them remained in the land. The Canaanites did not fear God or worship him. And part of what we need to understand about the, um, the context we're in, the book of Judges, is understand What was wrong with the Canaanites? Because God told the Israelites to go in and wipe them out. And a lot of people go, man, how could God, who's a loving God, uh, wipe people out? The truth is that God takes sin very seriously. And because these people, who were ancient peoples, they were only a few generations from Adam, who knew God, who knew the commands of God. I mean, you have Adam to Methuselah to Noah. It's three generations. They still had a knowledge of God, what God required of them. And then um, Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, they all got on the ark. They made it through the flood. They got off the ark, and they began to populate the earth. And so uh, the land of Canaan, in order to understand what was wrong and why God such a harsh judgment on these people, we have to go back in the book of Genesis and look at uh, Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, his sons, following the flood. And what happened? We have kind of a... I'll tell you, it's kind of an odd story, but I think we're going to make sense of it and um, why it's so important to the story of the human race and understanding what the nation of Israel was doing entering the land of Canaan. Genesis chapter 9, we'll start in verse 20. It says, after the flood, Noah began to cultivate the ground. He planted a vineyard. One day he drank some wine that he had made and became drunk and lay naked inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan. Okay, so Ham is the father of Canaan who would uh, be the father of the Canaanite people, all right? So Ham, the father of Canaan, saw that his father was naked. He went outside and told his brothers who were outside the tent. Then Shem and Japheth took a robe, held it over their shoulders, 
and backed into the tent to cover up their father. As they did this, they looked the other way so they would not see him naked. When Noah woke up from his stupor, he learned what Ham, his youngest son, had done. Then he cursed Canaan, the son of Ham. May Canaan be cursed. May he be the lowest of servants to his relatives. Okay, so an odd story. Noah, um, after they get off the ark and they begin to work the land, he plants a vineyard and he has some grapes. He makes some wine and he uh, indulges and he gets drunk. He's passed out in his tent, buck naked. Now, um, weird situation. Uh, We know that um, drunkenness is always attached to folly and foolishness, right? It's always considered a sin. So a person that is a drunkard is always, um, uh, that's always um, considered sinful and discouraged in the Bible. It reflects someone who's foolish and doesn't have wisdom, right? And all these things. So Noah isn't doing the right thing here. And yet Noah's not the one who gets in trouble in this story. It's Ham. And it's odd because it, You know, the writer who is Moses, right, in the book of Genesis under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as he recounts his story, he doesn't really take us inside the tent. He just says that Ham goes in there. Shem and Japheth are outside. The indication is they stayed outside because they knew their father was in a compromising position. And it appears the real sin here of Ham was to go in and disrespect his father. It's weird because we don't really know what happened. Some people speculate, well, did Ham do something sexual with his dad? Like, this is weird. Why, why did he get in so much trouble? You just can't see that in the text, right? It doesn't, it's not there. But what is there is seemingly Ham being very disrespectful to his father, even going outside and spreading the news, right, around the camp as to what he had done and the, the situation his dad was in. And so, Noah gets up and he discovers what Ham did. And he places a curse prophetically on one of Ham's sons. This is Canaan. So we have to believe that, again, prophetically, Noah was able to see that Ham's lack of character, his disrespectful attitude, the way in which he viewed authority, his father, the way he treated him, in the situation, he was going to pass on to his son Canaan, and Canaan was going to pass it on to his descendants. And so, as the nation of Israel goes in to the land of Canaan, and God raises up Abram, who became Abraham, who's a descendant of Shem, um, one of Noah's sons, that he promises Abraham the land of Canaan as the land that his people would occupy, and they would go in and judge harshly the people of Canaan because of their wickedness. See, in the Bible, when God pronounces judgment on a group of people, and he does, he kills them, wipes them out. He does this justly and righteously. God has created us as his people. And because of that, because he's righteous, he has the responsibility to judge us. And believe me, the Bible tells us in Revelation that we will all stand in judgment before God and give an accounting for what we've done with our lives. In the Old Testament, in ancient times, as I said, these people are closer to the knowledge of God and they live in a different era where grace and forgiveness are not as prevalent. 
You know, God sent Jesus to the earth to die on a cross to pay for our sins. And the Bible says in John 3 that God didn't come into the world, Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. So it's a different era. And God is doing something different in our time. We call people to repentance, right? And to confess and to uh, come to God for salvation so that we will not be destroyed. But this is a different era. Um, Through the years, I've talked to different people about the Old Testament's account of when God would judge people. And um, I remember talking to uh, one of my oldest daughter's friends who was struggling with a loving God who would just kill people. How could he do that? I asked her, do you know what those people were involved in? (laughs) Do you know the kind of behaviors that they were were, uh, involved in and acting out of? The way they were treating each other. What they were doing, and of course, no one ever does when they struggle with God judging. They don't know (laughs) what people were doing and why God took that action on them. But things that happened in the land of Canaan and in other places that we see where God judges people harshly, they're always involved in sexual perversion. There's always sex outside of marriage, adultery, it's called. There's always, uh, there can be things like open marriages where in societies they practice that, orgies, religious prostitution, um, fertility cults, where they would engage in sexual perversion in order to ensure that their crops grew that they had children. Oftentimes they'd get involved in child sacrifice, again, in the worship of idols. They would worship created things. In other words, they made idols and they would worship them instead of worshiping the one true God. And they knew there was one true God. All of these things would bring severe judgment on people. Notice that Ham is not cursed, which is kind of interesting, but it is Ham's character that is passed on to his son Canaan and their behaviors that are going to be judged. The situation in the time of judges looks like this. The people of Israel, because of the, what they've allowed to surround them, people of Canaan who did not worship God or fear God and acted in these perverse and wicked ways, they allowed them to exist around them. They didn't drive them out. And because of their presence, they would be pulled in their direction. They would be pulled and tempted, and eventually they would begin to act like these wicked people that surrounded them. And so God would deal with them. He judged them. He would punish them and discipline them in order to bring them back. Israel didn't have the stomach to do what God commanded them to do. They didn't go into the land of Canaan and complete the job. They allowed evil influence to remain around them. They showed a lack of courage and willpower to deal with the situation the way God had instructed them to do. They didn't deal ruthlessly with sin. They should have had no tolerance for it. As the people of God following God, they should have allowed none of that to be in their lives or in their country. And yet they did. The fact is that Israel did not obey God. Judges chapter 2, starting verse 20 This is what it says that the Lord did because of this behavior. So the Lord burned with anger against Israel. He said, because these people have violated my covenant, which I made with their ancestors and have ignored my commands, I will no longer drive out the nations 
that Joshua left unconquered when he died. I did this to test Israel to see whether or not they would follow the ways of the Lord as their ancestors did. This is why the Lord left those nations in place. He did not quickly drive them out or allow Joshua to conquer them all. So God quit helping them. He was testing them. How would they deal with sin in their lives? How would they deal with the sin that surrounded them? Uh, My family and I lived in Atlanta for a while back in the uh, mid-2000s, and I've shared that with you a little bit, but I were doing some mission work and trying to get a church started, and there was a young man that lived in this uh, little bohemian neighborhood we were working in and got to know him a little bit. He ran an import shop, retail shop, and uh, he shared with me one day as we got to know each other and we're talking about things that he'd grown up in the church. He was kind of exposed to Christianity, seemed like he was uh, believed it or was sympathetic to it, but because of the postmodern influence on that part of the country and really our whole country, which is a deconstructionist philosophy, right? Tear down everything. That's what postmodernism kind of begins with. And so the deconstruction of his faith uh, was something that he had encountered. And people around him, his friends, started to point out to him that there were problems with the Bible and with the God in the Bible. And one of the evidences that he referred to was that he discovered or he knew from the Bible that God was jealous. He said, jealousy is not a good character trait. It's not a good behavior. It's bad. And so therefore the God of the Bible who gets jealous is bad. And so this led him in the direction to move away from or leave his faith. Well, I did respectfully try to point out to him the faulty, the faultiness in that logic and that thinking shows a lack of understanding about who the God of the Bible is. See, when God gets jealous, it's altogether different than when we do. I mean, yeah, if we get jealous of what someone else has, someone else is successful, they get promoted and we're jealous of that. They get to marry the girl we wanted to, you know, I don't know. We get jealous of these things. Yeah, that's not a good character trait. It's not a good behavior from us. It reflects a self-centered heart, selfishness. But see, God isn't self-centered and selfish. When he gets jealous, it's out of love. So when he creates his people, the nation of Israel, and they go following false gods and idols, they go pursuing wickedness and sin, he gets jealous for them because he loves them. And he knows they're going to be moving into a direction that will bring destruction into their lives. And so he wants to save them. He gets jealous because of, he, because of his love for them. Not because he's jealous personally, right? That they're loving someone else. We can see jealousy show up in our lives in a healthy way. For instance, God created marriage, right? Created Adam and Eve and he instituted marriage. The Bible says in Genesis that for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, will cleave to his wife and the two will become one flesh. And we're commanded in scripture and over and over again, not to commit adultery or go outside of a marriage for intimacy. So when two individuals come together and they get married, they're making a commitment to selflessly serve each other, to work together, to raise a family. All of it requires selflessness to be able to do it. But when one individual 
holds on to selfishness and goes outside of the marriage to find intimacy, to find what they think is love, to meet a need that they have. It's a selfish act. Well, the other spouse is going to rightfully get jealous because it's a closed relationship. It's supposed to be between the two of them. And that's right. It's the way God created it. So jealousy can be correct even in us. The problem is that our jealousy too often turns into a desire for revenge or even judgment. And the Bible teaches us, even in the Old Testament, in Micah 6, 8, God said, love do justly when you interact with others, but love mercy. In the New Testament, we see God describing love to us and love always forgives, right? It never fails. It always pursues. It isn't self-interested. And so we really are taught a higher way to live. And so even though adultery is a legal grounds for divorce before God, God says, I'll let you out of the contract if your spouse goes outside of the marriage for intimacy, physical intimacy. It doesn't have to be. We don't have to divorce a spouse that cheats. We can pursue them and we can work to see that relationship restored. Even in the Old Testament, the book of Hosea, you'll see where Hosea was told to marry a prostitute in Gomer and continue to pursue her and love her even though she went outside of the relationship. God is pure in his jealousy. It is because he loves us that he is jealous. We need to um, learn to walk in obedience to God. Instant obedience is what we need to train ourselves in because we know that God loves us and when he calls us to do things or not do things, it's only for our own good because he knows if we go that direction, it will lead to destruction. That's what happened with Adam and Eve when they listened to Satan and they did what they wanted. It brought death and destruction to the human race. Thomas A. Campus said instant obedience is really the only kind of obedience there is. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Whoever strives, uh, strives to withdraw from obedience withdraws from grace. When we step outside of obedience to God and we walk um, living according to our sinful nature, we're really stepping outside of the blessing of God, the grace of God, which is his presence. And so we work at loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is what the Bible teaches us. Jesus said the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's all your emotion. Do you know you can direct your emotion? You're responsible to direct your emotion. We're we're called, we're commanded to love God with all our emotion. How about our soul? Our psyche, our personality. Love God with all our personality. Too often I have said and I've heard others say, well, I know it's not great that I got a temper. It's just part of my personality. (laughs) It runs in the family, you know. No, not okay. (laughs) We're called to surrender our personality to God and love him with our personality. We're to leave the behaviors that reflect selfishness and sin and love God. What about our mind, our intellect? We're to focus our mind and our thoughts on God. Our minds and what we think dictate what we do. 
Your thoughts will control your behaviors. What do you believe? Are you loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and the last is strength, your energy? Each of us get up each day and we go after life. We live. There's some energy that's required to do that. Are you directing your life at God and loving God? This is something that we can do, and it's why we're commanded to do it. God is our heavenly father. He's the authority in our lives. He represents supernatural authority. We fear him because he has the power to throw us into hell for all eternity. (laughs) He's going to judge us, right? And so we fear God, rightfully so. But God has given us earthly fathers to help us understand who he is. And our earthly fathers are an authority to us. We fear them when we've done wrong, and we should. Parents, your kids need to fear you a little bit, okay? It's important. You're not just supposed to be their friend. You've got to be an authority to them so they know what's right. And uh, even when we have godly fathers, and by the way, that's what's required, a godly father can show his children who God is, an image, a picture of who God is, to love them passionately, to fight for them, and to fight for their hearts and souls and minds when they're walking in the wrong direction. This is what fathers are supposed to do. We're called to live this out. Even though when we have a godly earthly father, as I did, it can still be tough to obey them all the time. One father said, there's one day a year where I get perfect obedience from everybody in my house, and that's Father's Day. I ask them not to spend a lot of money on me, and they obey me. (laughs) The people of Israel begin to allow the influence of these godless people around them to affect their lives. They begin to follow them. See, Israel began to allow sin into their lives. Judges chapter 2, backing up a little bit to verse 10, goes this way. After that generation died, that is the generation that came into the land under Joshua's leadership, after that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. When the nation of Israel came into the land under Joshua's leadership, um, they came uh, to cities. Remember, they came to Jericho. God said, march around the city. March around it. Shout, blow the trumpets, and I will destroy the walls. This was a miracle that God did. But there's a generation that came up that didn't know about those mighty things God had done. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and served the images of Baal. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them up out of Egypt They went after other gods, worshiping the gods of the people around them. And they angered the Lord. They abandoned the Lord to serve Baal and the images of the Ashtoreth. These were fertility cults, phallic symbols that they worshiped and committed evil acts around. This made the Lord burn with anger against Israel. So he handed them over to the raiders who stole their possessions. He turned them over to the enemies around them and they were no longer able to resist them. Every time Israel went out to battle, the Lord fought against them, causing them to be defeated, just as he had warned. And the people were in great distress. 
a generation came up that didn't know God and didn't fear him. One of the most sobering realities as a parent bringing children into the world and raising up a generation, one of the most sobering realities, most intimidating things for me was to know that I, as a father, would be one of the, one of the greatest influences on their life and that the direction they would go in life would mostly reflect my influence on them. Now, this is a sobering reality because I don't know about you, but I am not, was not a perfect father by any means. I struggled in many ways to be a good father and direct my children after God. And the truth is that as fathers, we have a great deal of influence. And when we allow sin to enter our lives, to influence us, is a powerful and corrosive influence. Our culture today, just like every culture, is warned as a people of God against the influences of the sinful world around us. That these influences will encroach upon our lives. They'll try to find their ways into our lives. And if we're not careful, if we don't resist, if we're not aware of them, if we don't fight against them, then we're going to allow them in and we're going to pass them on to our children. The way that it goes and you know this, is that each generation slips a little further. This is the tendency. That if one generation knows God and follows God, but they don't hand it off, the next generation slips a little further. And it doesn't take many generations before everything is lost. And the influence of sin is powerful and corrosive. If your kids see you, cheat a little bit, carry a grudge, hold on to that resentment and bitterness, try to get vengeance against someone else, steal, just a little dishonest, mistreat your spouse, engage in sexual perversion, do anything they learned in Sunday school as they studied the Bible, they learned it was wrong. When they see us do it, they're influenced, sadly, more by what we do than what we say. Rodney Atkins has a song called Watching You. It's just mildly convicting if you're a parent, especially a dad. It goes this way, driving through town, just my boy and me with a happy meal in his booster seat, knowing that he couldn't have a toy till his nuggets were gone. A green traffic light turned straight to red. I hit my brakes and mumbled under my breath. His fries went flying. His orange drink covered his lap. Well, then my four-year-old said a four-letter word. It started with S, and I was concerned. So I said, son, now where'd you learn to talk like that? He said, I've been watching you, Dad. Ain't that cool? I'm your buckaroo. I want to be like you and eat all my food and grow as tall as you are. We got cowboy boots and camo pants. Yeah, we're just alike. Hey, ain't we, Dad? I want to do everything you do. So I've been watching you. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure we've all been there. See something in our kids. That's wrong. Where'd you learn to do that? And they realize they learned to do it from us. Listen, we're not perfect parents. We're going to pass off some traits that we haven't yet surrendered to God. 
because we're not sinless. But how about if our kids see us honestly deal with those things, confess them to God, even apologize to our kids where we've fallen short before God? You know what that teaches our kids? It's not about being perfect, but it's about being humble before God and pursuing him. It's about loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The Israelites allowed the Canaanites to influence them. The cycle that we see in the book of Judges is we see rebellion or practicing sin by the nation of Israel. Then we see judgment or oppression by God where he allows their enemies to oppress them. Then they repent and they cry out to God for help because they're in pain. And then God raises up a judge to bring salvation to them. In the New Testament, when our walk with Jesus is referred to and we're taught about how we should live as followers of Jesus, we see that we are going to encounter this same cycle in our lives. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 1, the apostle John writes these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, my dear children, I am writing this to you so you will not sin. Number one goal is that you and I live our lives and we don't sin. We choose to be obedient to God. We love God with everything we are. He goes on to say this though, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. That means pays for our sins and not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world. Jesus' death on the cross atoned for, paid for all the sins of every human being who has ever lived, is living now, and will ever live. And we can be sure that we know him, listen, if we obey his commandments. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, well, that person is a liar, and they're not living in the truth. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That is how we know we are living in him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Have you allowed some sinful influence into your life? Have you allowed the world in? Have you adopted a practice, a behavior, character trait? that you have not rooted out of your life. You've allowed it in and it slowly has crept in and it's starting to take over. Maybe it's destroying relationships. Maybe it's stopping you from serving God. Maybe it's ruining your attitude. I don't know. All I know is that's what sin does. It always destroys. It always corrupts. It always ruins. And God calls us to focus back on him, to return to him. Because they allowed the corruption of sin to enter their nation, God allowed raiders and enemies to attack Israel and persecute them. They lived under oppression constantly or for periods of time until the pain of it caused them to cry out, God, I need help. They cried uncle. And God would raise up a leader. Today, the judge that we're looking at is a man by the name of Ehud. See, Ehud is raised up by God, and Ehud rescues the nation from the oppression of sin. Judges chapter 3, jump ahead to chapter 
3, verse 12. We'll pick up the story. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. And the Lord gave King Eglon of Moab control over Israel because of their evil. Eglon enlisted the Amorites and the Amalekites as allies. And he went out and defeated Israel, taking possession of Jericho, the city of Palms. And the Israelites served Eglon of Moab for 18 years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord again raised up a rescuer to save them. His name was Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed man of the tribe of Benjamin. The Israelites sent Ehud to deliver their tribute money to King Eglon of Moab. King Eglon comes and attacks Israel with some allies and takes them and makes them subjects of his, defeats them and taxes them. You got to pay a tax, a tribute. Now listen, I told you, the Bible's not rated PG, okay? We're moving into an intense story, all right? Maybe for church, but it's in the Bible. (laughs) All right, um, so Ehud, it comes up, he's raised up by God. One of the things to know about Ehud is he's a man of God. He fears God. He does not fear God's enemies. He's not afraid of King Eglon. He's not afraid of the Moabite people. He fears God. Here's what happens when you fear God. You have courage to stand up against sin and evil. You're not afraid of it. You can fight it. You can stand up against it because you have a righteous character. You have the power of God in you. And so you can rise up as a warrior to move against the sin that exists in your life. Maybe that's attacking your family. We're powerless to do anything against sin when we're walking in it. And so um, um, Ehud has the power of God. He's raised up to be a leader. And the judges were military leaders. They were spiritual leaders. And so Ehud is seen as a leader, powerful man of God. And so the Israelites say, you go pay the tribute. Now Ehud was a genius. He was a sharp man. He had the confidence of God, a fear of God, and no fear of anything else. And so Ehud figures out something that was kind of rare in this time. He figures out how to work with iron. And the Bible says he creates a dagger, about a foot long, double-edged dagger two sides to it, right? Well, he's left-handed, so he straps the dagger to his right thigh. Now, when he's going to go to Eglon and he's going to enter his chambers, he might be searched or they might look for a weapon, but being a left-handed man, they're going to look on his left side. So he, uh, he has a plan and he's thought it out and he does some work to create the weapon that he's going to use. And so Ehud takes the tribute to Eglon and they deliver it. And then they leave and they're headed home. And it says when they got to an area where there were some stone idols, Ehud said, hey, I got to go back. I forgot something. And he goes back and he says, Eglon, I've got some secret information for you I need to tell you. Now Eglon, being a ruler and a king, just like today, power is possessed in information. And so Eglon goes, Ooh, come on in to my room. I need to hear this. And he kicks out his servants. He kicks everybody out of the room, closes the door. Tell me the secret information. What's going on? And Ehud begins to walk towards Eglon. Eglon gets up out of his chair. Bible says this. I don't. Bible says Eglon is a fat man. He gets up out of his chair and begins to move towards Ehud. Ehud comes at him. And at the mean, as he moves, he draws his dagger with his left hand And he says, I've got a message from the Lord for you. 
and he thrusts the dagger into his belly. The Bible says it goes in so deep that his fat closes in around the handle and he leaves the dagger in him. He falls to the ground and the Bible says he empties his bowels. <laughs> it's in the Bible. So um, this is evidence, if you've ever been hunting or anything, this is evidence that he's dead. And so Ehud locks the door and escapes perhaps down the, the latrine. This is a second story uh, uh, room that Eglon is in. And he, he runs to catch up with his buddies. Well, the servants recognize some times going by. So they come and check the door. It's locked. They kind of knock on the door, but then they figure that King Eglon is maybe relieving himself. <laughs> a little irony in that. He had, but not the way they were thinking. So they wait a little bit. This delays. They're discovering what's happened. And so Ehud has time to get back with his, with his buddies. They run back to Israel. When they get back, they sound the alarm, the, the call to arms, and they gather um, uh, 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 an army. They rush down to the Jordan River where it narrows at a crossing. They stop the traffic so it cannot come or go across the Jordan River. Meanwhile, the Moabite people realize they figure out what's happened to Eglon, so they muster a force and send them to attack Israel. They got to maintain control here. Well, these troops, this band of men that are at the river, because they're narrowed and they can only come through, they begin to kill them as they come across the river. And it, the Bible says they kill 10,000 of Moab's strongest men. They defeat the Moabites and there's peace in Israel for 80 years. Ehud takes drastic measures toward the oppressors, the enemies of Israel. Metaphorically, I mean, literally, Ehud is battling against the enemies of God. Metaphorically, in our lives, I wonder how you're doing at battling against the devil's attempts to pull you in the direction he wants you to go. How are you doing at fighting against sin? We live in a sinful world. It's full of evil and wickedness. Are you allowing it in or are you fighting against it? If you don't think it's going to get bloody, then you haven't tried. It's not easy. You have an enemy who knows you. He's going to play on your hurts and your wounds. He's going to play on your scars. He's going to try to convince you to nurse your hurts. Don't heal from them. Nurse them. Hide your wounds. Don't let anybody see the wounds that are inside. Just hide them. Be strong. Be, be, you can handle this. Lash out because of your scars. That's what he's going to try to get you to do. It's one of the most effective tactics the devil has right now for the people of God. You're going to have to respond ruthlessly. You're going to have to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you're going to have to go after these attempts to destroy you with decisiveness and courage. And you're going to have to be ruthless in rooting out these sins that come into our lives and get a hold of us. Ruthlessly rooting out unforgiveness. We know the Bible says to forgive, but we don't do it. We want to hold on to it. No, you've got to be ruthless. Do you know what unforgiveness will do to you? It will destroy your life. It's not to play with. It's not a, oh, just a simple, it's no big deal. It will destroy you. You have to be ruthless in forgiving. That's why Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, Father, forgive us 
because we've already forgiven those who have sinned against us. Root out anger, revenge. You'll need to bring the sin that results from hurts into the light. That's why confession is so important. It brings our hidden sins that are caused usually from hurts into the light and their power is gone. We're supposed to humble ourselves before God and acknowledge that we're not perfect. We have issues. We have addictions. We got unforgiveness. We've got resentment towards others. We have grudges that we hold on to. We need to walk into healing. The Bible says the Holy Spirit will dwell within you when you trust Christ. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in you. But I watch a lot of Christians, and this has been me too, who come to God for a miracle. He saves us, rescues us, takes us from death to life. And then he says, follow me and I'll lead you into healing. But we don't follow him into healing. And so we end up being the walking wounded, saved people who are not walking like God wants us to walk with power and and spiritual uh, uh, strength and the ability to love others and to help other people find healing. When I was uh, a young man, I began to serve in the church and in my 20s, I kind of, God called me into ministry and I started serving and in my late 20s, I got into ministry where I saw some things, really amazing things happen, some miracles that God did. And following that, I, I just continued to pursue what I thought was God's call into mission work and church planting. And I'll tell you, um, there, was, there was a sin that I started to allow into my life and uh, started kind of subtly. It didn't seem like a big deal. It just seemed, kind of felt like confidence, you know, started to get more confident in what I was doing. And so I didn't really recognize it, but over time it grew. And I even let church leaders and pastors kind of encourage me, hey, you've got you've to um, be this way. You've got to be kind of, I know it seems weird, but you've got to be a little self-promoting. And, and you've got to kind of lift yourself up and say, hey, I can do this. And, and you've got to be confident, right? Um, otherwise, how can you do this work? It's so difficult starting a new church and being out there in the middle of, uh, of the world and trying to do God's work. It's hard. And so you kind of have to do this. And I didn't really see it for a long time. In fact, it wasn't until I got into a church plant, as you guys know my story in Denver, and and I was the lead pastor. I was the guy. I had dreams of God doing amazing things. I was going to be the next church planting phenom, see a church that would grow and would reach many, many people. And with the weight of all that on my shoulders the opportunity given to me because of my sin issue, I started to go, this is all on me. And that's great because I can do it. (laughs) I'm talented. I'm gifted. I know I can pull this off. But as things didn't go as I expected, as the weight of life and pressure and stress piled on, it started to crush me because I didn't recognize that I'd allowed pride into my life and I had allowed it to grow and I had fed it and encouraged it and believed it more and more until under the weight of ministry, which is something you can only do if you're relying on God, I got crushed, I got depressed, anxious, fearful, angry. Had to close down that church, close a dream. I was mad at God. Why didn't you make this come true? I'm serving you. took about a year driving around Colorado looking at a windshield 
for God to open up my heart and mind and to reveal to me what the problem was that I had become so prideful that I wasn't relying on God for anything. And if I can do that as a pastor, I know anybody can do it. Now we think pride's okay, it's a good thing. That's a good character trait, right? It'll destroy you. It'll destroy you if you let it. Ultimately, I had to humble myself before God and recognize that I had allowed, put myself in front of God And I'll tell you, I still can struggle with pride. I'm not immune from it, but the pain of what it did to me is a reminder that I'll never forget. Not to allow sin to so consume me that it takes over because it always will bring destruction. How about you? Is there something you've let in your life you just have let it be there? Maybe your whole life. You haven't rooted it out. You haven't really found healing from it. And anytime you get close to healing, you just run away. No, no, I don't need that. I can handle it. Folks, there's, there's no hope. There's no life outside of repentance before God, humbling ourselves before God, then he will heal you. It's in the pursuit of God that we get healing. I don't know where you're at today, but if you haven't put your trust in Jesus yet, if you've never asked him to be your savior, humbled yourself before him and said, God, I need your forgiveness. I'm a sinner and I need your forgiveness. I would call you to do that today. If you're a Christian walking with God, but you know you've let a sin into your life and you've, you haven't fought it, you haven't gone after it ruthlessly to destroy it and get rid of it. The Bible tells us to confess our sin He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's confess and repent. Repentance is eternal way. If you don't, you're just gonna pass it on. You're gonna bring destruction into your own life and the lives of the people around you. God gives us a way out, calls us to it. I pray that we would move back towards God. You know, we want revival to come to our land The way I look at it is one of two things can happen. Either we can turn back to God or Jesus can come back. (laughs) Things are getting pretty bad. I don't know which it is, but I know the right thing for us to do either way is to turn our hearts towards God. God, would you bring us to a place of surrender? We're proud people. We wanna bootstrap it through life. We don't wanna acknowledge our weaknesses. And yet, God, There really is no power in it if we'll just turn it over to you. You wanna heal us. You wanna take the burdens off our shoulders, set us free. Jesus, you said, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. We need that rest that you wanna give us. God, I pray for each person here, they would respond to you, not let anything stop them from turning towards you to get on their knees before you, put their trust in you and ask you into their lives, that they would confess and repent of their sin. And Father, would you restore us? Would you make us the people that are not the walking dead, but the the walking, living, full of life, able to help the world around us find you too. Pray this in Jesus' name.